Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. How are you today? Happy Monday to you. Happy next to the last Monday in August to you of 2020. (laughs) I don't know about you, but um, I'm really eager for 2020 to get over. Give us a new leaf in the book. Of course, 2020 must end the right way. I'm thrilled uh, to be back talking to you about idealism and idealists, and we have a great show. The big interview you are going to love. It's with a man named Michael Fosberg, who has a one-act play about discovering his identity and uh, who does some of the same work that I do around diversity and inclusion and equity in America about training and talking about tough subjects. Um, and about how to get past our differences. And in my C block, I'm going to share with you um, a piece of writing from a, another writer from uh, who I think will you will appreciate. But first, let's um, let's do our initial block here, and let's talk about our featured idealist. And she is a Palestinian American uh, woman named Linda Sarsour, who uh, self-discovered. Uh, who is self-describes, excuse me, Ellie, read your writing as a, quote, racial justice civil rights activist. Now, if you watch uh, NBC, uh, MSNBC, uh, you're going to have seen Linda Sarsour from time to time. She is on um, and she is approximately 40 years old, uh, very cogent and crisp and uh, not afraid to mince words. um, And she wears hijab. Remember, she's Palestinian. She's Islamic and she's she's very adamant in her opinions. Now, I picked up uh, on her over the weekend through a tweet that reported that she was in Kentucky to work for justice for Breonna Taylor, um, where you know what that's about and where um, Sarsour was also encountering Islamophobia in Kentucky. Surprise about that. The quick background here. Linda Sassour was born in Brooklyn and is the oldest of seven children of Palestinian immigrants. Her father actually owned a small market in Brooklyn named Linda's, hence um, where her name came from. Um, her high school was in New York City and then she attended Brooklyn College, although it's not clear to me whether she even has a degree. Um, after 9-11 – Uh, So she's in her early 20s at this point. She began to engage in activism for the Arab American Association of New York. She had a mentor at the time, Basima Atwa, who um, headed the organization, that is the American Association, Arab American Association of New York. Unfortunately, Basima Atwa was killed in a car truck crash in 2005. And this was when Linda Sarsour was actually driving the vehicle. The truck rear-ended them and and, uh, the passenger, Basima Atwa, was killed. Now, at the age of 25, Sarsour then took over the helm that her mentor had, took over the helm of the Arab American Association of New York and dramatically elevated it, increasing its budget from $50,000 to $700 thousand dollars a year. I mean, that is dramatic increase in budget. That must be a dramatic increase in in programming, a dramatic increase in the size of footprint of the organization. Now, I want to just stop you for a minute, okay? Because a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about another young person, 
by the name of John Lewis, who was also dynamic at the age of 25. You will recall that at age 25, John Lewis spoke at the March on Washington. Um, age, listeners, teaching moment here, age doesn't have to be a barrier when it comes to changing the world, with ch- when it comes to idealism. So don't let age stop you on either end um, because here you, yours truly here, heading towards 64, strong idealist. Okay, back to Linda Sarsour. Um, after she became the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York, she started to take on things. First, she took on policing policies in New York City and advocated for the creation of a community and community organization that would oversee um, police departments. So she was pivotal in getting the Community Safety Act passed in New York, which in turn created boards that that review police practices. She also, also successfully advocated for New York schools to recognize and observe Islamic holidays. Eventually, Sarsour turned her attention to bigger things. Following Michael Brown's murder in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, Sarsour organized Black Lives Matter protests and has continued to work with Black Lives Matter ever since. That's what brought her to Kentucky over the last this last weekend. In 2017, she became the co-chair of the 2017 Women's March on Washington. You may recall that that march came on the heels of Donald Trump being elected president. And it was the largest march in the history of Washington as of that time. I think it may be even up to the present. At the same time, Sarsour became the named plaintiff in a lawsuit, Sarsour v. Trump, brought by the Council on American-Islamic Relations, seeking to challenge Trump's Muslim ban. So, I mean, now remember, I mean, this is a woman. She's very prominent and she is not afraid to take on big things. Sarsour was also tapped to help lead the 2019 Women's March on Washington, but had to step down after there was a controversy over her and others' refusal to condemn Nation of Islam, leader Louis Farrakhan for anti-Semitic and homophobic comments. Okay, so now, of course, this idealist, Linda Sarsour, starts to do her work and, of course, she starts to attract controversy. And uh, the larger you get, the bigger footprint you, you have, the easier it is for you to start attracting flack, okay? Um, parenthetically here, yours truly, Ellie Krug, doing good work, important work, small footprint, hardly ever attracts any kind of flack. I kind of like that, but on the other hand, when I start getting – if I ever start to get flack, I'll know that my footprint is getting bigger. OK. Back to our program. Um, as one would expect, Sarsour is a huge supporter of Palestinian rights. But interestingly, she favors a one-state solution. She doesn't support either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority, but she's also an advocate for the BDS movement, that is the Boycott, Divest, Sanctions movement to force Israel to treat Palestinians with greater dignity and rights and to end their oppression by – certainly by the Palestinian occupying authority on um, the East and West Banks. 
Sarsour has drawn the ire of conservative Israelis and American Jews. But she has the support of progressive Israelis and liberal American Jews because she has been very supportive of of Jewish causes here in America. So, for example, she also helped raise money for Jewish organizations um, after after tragedy. So, so she helped raise money on a, a GoFundMe platform for a Jewish cemetery in St. Louis that was vandalized. And after the 2018 Tree of Life synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh, she helped to raise money for the Jewish community in Pittsburgh as well. Politically, here in the U.S., Sarsour has campaigned for Bernie Sanders in the past. Um, and in 2012, President Obama recognized her as a champion of change. So, you know, the thing is, um, Linda Sarsour is somebody that you will hear of, no doubt, as we go forward. No doubt. Um, she's attempted to run um, for political office um, as a county supervisor, I believe, in New York. She came in third. Um, but I, I would predict uh, that we will be seeing her name, we will be seeing her face in future political activity, in future political campaigns. So she is absolutely um, an idealist to keep your eyes on, to keep your fingers on in terms of understanding. Linda Sarsour, idealist, someone trying to change the world, trying to do good, trying to push the envelope and not at all afraid. <laughs> That's what idealists do. They're not afraid. Okay, that takes us care of us for our first block. When we come back, we're going to do our interview with Michael Fosberg. Trust me, you will love this interview. He is a dynamic speaker. Okay, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug um, and on Instagram at elliejkrug. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out ReuseBFM.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the Reuse Warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota.com. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. We're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. 
So uh, check out Linda Sarsour, please, um, because you're going to be hearing far more about that idealist as we go forward in life. And now for the big interview, I have another idealist and someone you are absolutely going to love uh, listening to. I have Michael Fosberg on the line. Michael, are you he- are you here? I'm here, Ellie. Oh, well, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, Michael, let me just quickly introduce you. You are a Chicago native, um, and you are the author of a really great memoir, Incognito, colon, An American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. The book has been out for a number of years. You're actually, I understand, working on your second book. And uh, just so the audience understands our connection, um, I was on a symposium online last week where you were one of the speakers uh, talking about diversity and inclusion. And I've got to tell you, I was enamored with you and um, thought that you would make a really great guest for my radio show. So welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to talk to you. I, I just want to point out that I actually did just publish that second book, ah. which is called Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. And folks can get that at the website at incognitotheplay.com if they're interested in um, either of those books. But that was when you met me uh, virtually on that conference. Um, I was speaking about the points, the lessons, or the tools, as I, I prefer to refer to them as, the tools that I've learned over 15 years of trying to get people to have conversations about race and identity. Okay, well, that's great. And and certainly, um, uh, readers, uh, check out both of those books. I'm sure that they were, they're really great. I haven't had the chance yet. But so, Michael, let's begin a little bit with your story, if we could. Sure. Okay. What, sure, sure. You know, what is it? How did... <laughs> How did, how did you, I get how, here? Yeah, how did, how you, did I get here? Yeah, give us a little bit about that, okay? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, I was uh, when I was in my early 30s. Um, I got a, I woke up to a phone call one day um, from my sister informing me that our parents were about to get a divorce. And you need to understand that my sister and I share a, a biological mother. But her father um, is actually my stepfather. You see, my mother had left my biological father when I was very young, just about two years old. And she moved from Boston back to her hometown, which is uh, Waukegan, Illinois, just uh, north of Chicago. And uh, she remarried when I was about four or five, and then they had two kids. And I was raised in a you know a working class white family by my Armenian mother and my adoptive Swedish stepfather. Yep. And then, as I mentioned, my sister called to tell me they were getting a divorce, which was a huge surprise to me. But it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just absolutely devastated by the news. And I realized in that phone call that I didn't know who my biological father was. My mother had never told me anything about him or my family, his family or anything. So I started asking questions and my mother gave me two bits of information. She told me his name and she told me that the last time she had spoken to him, which was some 30 years prior, that she thought he lived in the Detroit area at the time. So armed with that information, this was the age before we used the Internet for everything. Before <laughs> the, the Internet li- existed, right. Okay. Right? Now it's like all about the Internet, right? Well, I, at libraries used to have um, – phone book sections where they would house phone books from major cities around the country. So I went to the library and I looked for the Detroit phone book and I found it and I looked up his name and there were about four or five listings for John Sidney Woods and I copied them all down and I raced home and scared out of my mind. I finally picked up the phone and dialed the first number on the list and it turned out to be my father. 
Wow. First what, phone call. What luck. Okay. What luck, exactly. <laughs> and in that phone call, uh, you know, we're trying to wrap our heads around, you're my dad, I'm your son. I mean, you know, you can only imagine it was awkward and uncomfortable. And what do we say? And how do we make up for these 30 years? And then out of the blue, my father says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I thought, okay, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else could there be? <laughs> so he said, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you. And I've thought about you oh, a lot. That, and very this, important. yes, very yes, this is my father telling me that for the first time in my memory that he loved me. And then he said, there's one mm. other thing I, I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. <laughs> and uh, again, I grew up in a working class white family thinking I was a white guy. And suddenly I was a lot more than that. And then he proceeded to tell me about my my black family, that uh, my great great grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great grandfather was an all star pitcher in the Negro Leagues and pitched for the St. Louis Stars. And my grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University are named after him. Oh, my gosh. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And after he proceeded to tell me all that, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we get back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part. (laughs) And and then uh, we talked and we exchanged phone numbers. And uh, and it went off from there. And I and my grandparents were still alive. I got to meet my grandparents, and um, it was just an amazing journey. And I, I, you know, as I mentioned during that symposium, I share this story in the form of a one-man play. Over the course of about forty-five or fifty minutes, I share that story, portraying over a dozen different characters as I tell that story as if it's happening in the moment. And I've used that story over 15 years to, um, aside from, you know, I started in a theater and, and I had this opportunity, you know, to, to, I, we were talking about taking it to New York, maybe off Broadway and those things didn't happen. And being a, you know, a freelance artist, writer, performer, I thought, well, you know, it's time to move on to the next, the next project. But instead I was asked to do a presentation for a group of high school students one night. And uh, and these were students from high schools all around the country. And I did the play and it was just out of this world. It was just the response was incredible. And then afterwards, as usually happens when you have a group of students in the audience, that sometimes the, the, the artists will come out and, and answer questions, you know, about how you crafted the play and, you know, how do you play all those characters and how did you decide on the blocking and the set and all of that kind of stuff. But instead, that night, the students asked me questions about, well, what box do you check off on applications? And how do you see race? And why is it so important? And how do we talk about it? And all these important questions about how we fit in, how we look at other people and how, uh, how we look at ourselves. And I realized how powerful the piece had the, to, to speak to people who are on this journey. And, you know, we're all on this journey of identity. Yep, we are. We're all trying to figure out who we are and how we fit in and where we fit in. And uh, high school students in particular, you know. But not everybody gets such an astounding news about their identity. And, you know, but I agree with you. We're all on that kind of journey. And and, uh, you and I share some things in common. We were joking before we got on air. I mean, you know, I sound like a dude but look like a chick. You look white but you're really black, you know. (laughs) And so (laughs) – All right. Well, Michael, we've got to take a quick break, okay? But when we come back, I want to hear more about your – 
you know, how your work pivoted from that experience with the high school students and, and talk a little bit more about what you're doing right now and, and the insights you have about how our country can heal from where it's at. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, we've been speaking with Michael Fosberg, who's the author of Incognito and American Odyssey on Race and Self Discovery, and a second book that's just out. Nobody wants to talk about it, about race. You can visit his website at incognito.com. I may have to get him to give me a better site when we come back. And um, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. Hi, Alex of Better Futures, Minnesota. Does your business or organization need janitorial services, lawn care, or snow services? Obtain a free, no-obligation estimate from Better Futures Minnesota when you mention that you heard about us on AM950. Our supervised, hardworking, and affordable crews will handle your interior and exterior building and property maintenance needs while you help men in your community transform their lives and walk on a positive path to success. It's a win-win. To learn more, go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com under Business Services. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Um, before we took our break, we had started the big interview with Michael Fosberg, uh, the author of two books, including the most recent, Nobody Wants to Talk About It. Um, and you can find about those books at incognitotheplay.com. So I needed to correct that website. Michael, let's pick back up. So yes. before we took our break, you go and you do you, – you had been doing, you know, one-person plays – Right. Um, because to fill, you know, your theater niche and all that kind of stuff, and <laughs> right, you right, need right. to be imaginative. Then you yeah. have this experience with high school students who start who start expanding the box for you, and yes. so they ask you questions not about how, how did you come up with the play, but then they start asking you what does this mean today in America, right. and how did that change you? What and what year was that 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 happened? Uh, Two thousand one. Oh, oh, yeah. way okay, yeah. way back when. So way yeah. before. Well, I, started, I did the I did the play in two thousand and one, and then um, I did it at a couple of different theaters, and it led up to the summer of uh, two thousand and three. Okay, and like I said, I did it for these high this high school kids, and I thought actually that would be the last time I was do I would do the play because I couldn't find any other theaters that were interested in producing it or sponsoring it or whatever, and so when I got that kind of response from the students. Um, after we had done that question and answer, I kind of came off the stage and greeted some students and they came up to me and they said, you know, would you come to my high school and do your play? And I thought, why would I want to come to your high school and do my play? <laughs> I just couldn't put my, I couldn't wrap my head around like, what, what would that do for me? And then it sort of, it made sense. Like, wait a minute, they had all these incredible questions about identity yeah. and about race. And they saw it before I saw it about how, yep. how deeply 
you know, important it was to have these conversations. And then I thought, well, I could probably get paid to do that. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. That, that's the next step. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. So I did, <laughs> I did probably a, a half a dozen schools that first year. And then the next year I doubled that number. And the next yep. year I doubled that number. And then somebody from a college had reached out to me. And then I started to tour around in this colleges performing the play. And then again, facilitating this dialogue after the play, and then one night I found myself at a business college outside of Philadelphia and um, I, all these business executives came up to me after the play with cor- from corporations around yep. the area. And they said, would you come and do this for our teams? And I thought, wow, yeah, a- absolutely. I bet I could get, get paid some more money for that. <laughs> so I, I then I started to become aware of the D&I space, the DE&I space, the diversity, equity and inclusion space, um, which is – happening not just in corporations but also in educational institutions and i started to just consume everything i could about that space yeah. and about that dialogue and and i started to be able to figure out how to shape it and to shape the the dialogue after the play mm-hmm. and i started to learn all these things um while i was on the road thus that that's the new book is actually about my travels over the past 15 years instigating these dialogues and all of the different things that I've learned, the seven tools that I can offer people to have more meaningful conversations about race and identity. Right. And, um, and, and we don't, time doesn't allow for you to get into all of those tools, but, yes. but, but yes. can we, you know, suffice to say that an important component of those tools is our ability to tell our stories and to hear right. and to give people the space to, to hear other people's stories and not to judge them for them. Right. Right. The, mo- the most important piece of the puzzle, I think, is that and it, it is the idea, not the idea, the, the fact that we have more in common than we have different. Yep. Yep. And yet we allow those differences to stop us in our tracks, to keep us from getting to know someone, um, wh- whatever it might be, a difference in skin color or, or, or a- accent or dialect or whatever it might be. Those things keep us from getting to know someone. And yet we have more in common with that person than we have different. We're not allowing ourselves to go further. Well, and, and let me come back to that. Just hold, put a pin in that, and let me just yeah. share this with you, okay? Again, mm-hmm. you and I have many commonalities. So when I yeah. came out as transgender in 2009, even though uh, right now that's only 11 years ago, for the transgender community, it's like 75 years ago. And so <laughs> in 2009, people didn't know a whole lot about being transgender. And so yeah. I, and that time, I was a full-time practicing civil trial lawyer going and trying cases. And mm-hmm. – um, but – on the side, you know, yeah, on this evening I'll come and talk for 20 minutes. And then I started getting more requests to talk about what gender. And so much so that I created a formal program around it, still again on the side. And then I realized, uh, just as you realized, that there's a great hunger out there for just how to be welcoming to anybody who is different yes. or other. And so then yes. I went on and created a more formal program, another formal program called Gray Area Thinking. And just like you, fell into it, 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 it expanded, you know, and now just like you, my work is, you know, I do this now full time. I don't practice law anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm doing, you know, large corporations. Last week I did CVS corporate to 400 mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by the similarities. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. And, and to the fact that we both tumbled to this thing about telling stories. Tell me more about how you think it is um, that storytelling is so pivotal here. Well, there's a 
there's an academic term for it called intergroup contact theory. And intergroup contact theory was postulated by a uh, Harvard psychologist by the name of Gordon W. Allport. In 1954, he wrote a book called The Nature of Prejudice. And the theory is that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us because we discover that we have a lot more in common than we have different. And uh, he did all this uh, seminal uh, research and studies on all of this information. And, and, and essentially, intergroup contact theory is just an academic term for storytelling. Right. I mean, that's what it is. I, I wanted to share with you the dedication in my new book is to anyone and everyone who has ever felt different or <laughs> that they didn't belong. We have much in common. What a great dedication. Yeah. What a great dedication. Um, and so uh, – um, have you? I mean, have you ever gotten any pushback from any of your work? I mean, I'm assuming oh, you're going across sure. the country. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten a lot of pushback. I mean, one of the tools actually is that we have to recognize that there isn't any one way to have a conversation about race and identity. I mean, if there was one way to have the conversation, we'd all be doing it. It'd make it a lot easier. But there isn't one way to do it. We all come from a different place. We all come from a different experience. And sharing that, we're sharing that through our lens, the way that we see the world. And that just makes it for a very messy and, uh, another tool, uncomfortable conversation. So we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I've had you know, all kinds of pushback. I'm not on social media anymore, as a matter of fact, because of the, the trolling and the, well, and the disagreeableness on most social media. I'm not, I, I, I'm off Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. The only social media I guess I, I'm on is LinkedIn, um, which is a business platform. But, right. um, yeah, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't be a part of that anymore. Okay. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, so, you know, what I'm finding in my work is, is fear. It's, Yes. You know, I have a saying that 98% of all people are good, have good empathetic hearts. 2% are total sociopaths, but the other 98% <laughs> are good. And, um, but, but most, many of the 98% are afraid. They're scared to death and they're afraid yes. of exercising their empathetic hearts for fear of it's going to cost them time or money or grief or all that type of stuff. And so then we just stay in our respective camps. I think right. the thing that I found fascinating about your, you know, your play and your work is that you, we don't have to do anything except sit in an audience and you invite yeah. us in. Okay. You yeah. invite us in through humor because you, you know, you have a really great sense of humor and you're a really great actor. You are very good. Mm -hmm. And, Thank um, you. and, and, and so Michael, I think that what that does is that just breaks the ice for just about anybody. Um, whether yeah. you're red or blue or Bernie or whatever you are. And, right, uh, right. and, and have you gotten those comments from, say, the red people who are like, I didn't expect this. This is different than what I had anticipated and I'm more interested now. Well, I would definitely say that, you know, for the most part, um, audiences I, that I'm speaking in front of are, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir ah, for the okay. most part. That is not to suggest that there aren't some in the audience. And I have experienced this and gotten emails from people and some pushback in audiences. But I try to like one of the things that I sometimes hear is people will talk about they'll dismiss diversity, equity, inclusion as a, a as a political issue. Right. And I'm like, yep. it's not a political issue. It's a human issue. This is about human beings, not about politics. It doesn't matter if you're red or blue. Yep. This is about the way that we treat people, the way that we accept people or don't accept people. And the fear comes from, a, a you know, this 
misunderstanding of not of 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 not feeling comfortable in an uncomfortable place. And so it brings up a lot of fear and therefore you act out on that by pushing someone away. And that's why I say one of the important tools is we've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Right. Absolutely. So with the time that we have left, Michael, tell us, because I ask everyone on the show, yes. what what do you think made you an idealist? Because it's not a given, <laughs> even after that thing with the students, it's right. not a given that you would continue onward in this down this pathway. Right. Well, I have to say, as an artist, I was always attracted to things, to plays, to movies where you would walk in the theater and you would laugh your off. I mean, it would just be hilarious. And then you would walk out of the theater thinking. To me, that is the, the most mm -hmm. satisfying artistic experience. And that can be true of reading a book or yep. seeing a painting or, you know, again, a play or a movie. And for me, I, was, I always gravitated towards that, that thing. Of, of enjoying, but also walking out deeply thinking about what is this trying to say to me? And I think when this journey happened for me and I started to see how powerful it was and how in my telling of it, it had this incredible power. I realized that I, I was in that slot. I was in that space that I so much enjoyed and longed for and that is using theater as a, a, a for social change yep and um i think it just the more i discovered how powerful it was the more i gravitated towards it and i and it led me you know to some degrees like you, you you're not practicing law anymore i'm not really in the theater or entertainment community anymore i'm in the diversity equity and inclusion space and i just happen to deliver a message using the arts well but it's a great message and yes. it is um innovative it, it's an innovative way of getting people to think differently right and, um and i you know i don't know if you've got plans to ever retire but i would Dude, dude, I would tell you to just keep doing this, okay? I mean, well, really. you know, I have to say, I have to say, the pandemic in some ways, it's crazy. It's sort of helped me. For years, I'd been thinking about trying to, how can I get this thing virtually? How can I take my play and create a virtual platform? And of course, the pandemic forced me to do that. And so now we have virtual programs utilizing the play as the leaping off point, as the jumping off point. And so. I can do things online and not have to, you know, fly around the country and risk my health and all of that. And it's been a, you know, in a way, it's been a gift that uh, I can still do this and make a powerful impact. Well, and I've had the same experience. So, um, Michael, if people go to your website, um, incognitotheplay.com, can they see a snippet of the play just to yes. get a flavor of it? Yes, yes, absolutely. There's there's videos of the play. There's um, there's interviews with me. There's a talk back with a corporate audience. There's an interview with me and Don Lemon on CNN. There's all kinds of um, video clips and stuff on there. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've done. You've had great success. Uh, a little bit more than Ellie Krug, I might note. And so yeah. I'm happy for you on that. Um, and again, if people want to read about you and or are your books available on Amazon and Kindle and that stuff, or only through your website? They're, they're available on Amazon. We're, uh, 
like what do you call it, an independent seller on Amazon. But it's best if you want to get a copy to go to the website because we'll I'll sign the book then. Okay. <laughs> if you go to the website, I'll autograph it. All right. So. One last time on the website incognitotheplay.com. Both books are there. Um, nobody wants to talk about it. Race, identity, and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations. And Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. Michael Fosberg, I cannot tell you how much of a pleasure it has been for me to speak with you. And, Holy, same here. And I just, I have enjoyed this so much. Now I'm going to cut off, but hold on, okay? I'll catch you after yeah. after I let you go, all right? And Absolutely. And so, um, audience members, we've been speaking with Michael Fosberg, um, an artist, an idealist, somebody who is dynamic. Take my word for it because I've seen him in action. Go check him out. And if you are looking for something unusual for your organization... He's the one. Well, so am I. But he's the one. He's going to make you laugh a little bit more than Ellie Krug will. Okay? When we come back from our break, um, I'm going to give you my C-block where I talk about my work. And visit my website at elliekrug.com if you want to know more about me. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out ReuseBFM.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the Reuse Warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota, dot com. Radio on AM 950. I don't know about you, but I, I could have talked to Michael Fosberg um, probably for the whole show, if not two shows. He is a very interesting person. I highly, highly recommend you go check out his website, incognitotheplay.com. Watch the clip. It's about a two- or three-minute clip, I believe. You will get a sense of this man. And um, if you're interested... Reach out to him. Obviously, he can do everything virtual now. So there you go. Okay. All right. Well, we're in my C block right now where I talk about my work as an idealist. Um, and I need to give you a trigger alert. Um, you know, trigger alert. Just be aware of this um, because I'm going to talk tangentially about cancer. And if there's anyone listening where this might be too much for them at this moment in time, it's okay to call it a day with LE 2.0 Radio and tune in next week for another fantastic show. Um, but for the rest of you, um, here's the background. Last week, I spent a day of training uh, CVS Corporate. You just heard me say that with Michael Fosberg. Um, that's the pharmacy people. but it and, and they also own Aetna. I think I read that they make they bring in – $300 billion a year or something like that. I mean, we're talking gigantic 
mega corporation enterprise. And I spoke to them. They brought me in to talk about human inclusivity. I gave them my gray area thinking talk and I did a couple of other talks for them. We had 400 plus top people, including the president and the top VPs of the company. Um, and I'm happy to say that my work was well received. But part of the day included me giving them a reading assignment in advance. So I'd ask people in advance of that when we had um, – the day was broken up and I spoke three different times and the shortest time was for about a half hour. And this is where we covered this reading assignment. And this is – I want to talk with you about what I assigned for their reading um, because I think that it's important. So if you have pen and paper, you might want to take this out down, although um, I will have it in the show description and you can go to LE 2.0 Radio um, for podcasts and on AM 950 and you'll be able to get it as well. But this is a piece by a man named Tony Hoagland, H-O-A-G-L-A-N-D, who's primarily a poet. But some time ago, Tony Hoagland was diagnosed with cancer. And he ended up being treated at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And as poets and writers in general are apt to do, he watched and observed, and then he wrote. His piece, his story, titled, quote, The Cure for Racism is Cancer, unquote, was published in the Sun magazine in September of 2018. Again, the title is, quote, The Cure for Racism is Cancer by Tony Hoagland, H-O-A-G-L-A-N-D, in the Sun Magazine in September of 2018. Um, Hoagland's basic premise is that cancer makes everyone equal, whether you're rich and powerful or poor and just like the rest of us. All, we are all the same, when we have cancer. Certainly, some can afford better or more expensive treatments, but at least in the beginning, everyone has the same fears, everyone has the same worries. And for this, Hoagland calls it the country of cancer. He writes, and I'm going to be quoting here for quite a bit, so you're going to have to work with me. He writes, quote, the strange country of cancer, it turns out, is the true democracy, one more real than the nation that lies outside these walls and more authentic than the lofty statements of politicians. A democracy more incontrovertible than platitudes or aspiration. In the country of cancer, everyone is simultaneously a have and a have not. In this land, no citizens are protected by property, job, description, prestige and pre pretensions. They are not even protected by their prejudices. Neither money nor education – Greed nor ambition can alter the facts. You are simply citizen, can cancer citizens bargaining for more life. It is true that this is not a country you ever plan to visit, much less move to. It is true that you may not have previously considered these people your compatriots, but now you have more in common with them than you have with your oldest childhood friends. You live together in the community of cancer. Think about that. And with this, you contemplate. Here he also writes, quote, More good news. Now that you are sick, you have time to think. From this rocky promontory, you can contemplate the long history of your choices, your mistakes, your good luck. You can think about race, too, because most of the people who care for you will be non-white, often from other countries. You may be too sick to talk, 
but you can watch them and learn. Your attention is made keen by need and by your intimate dependence upon these inexhaustibly kind strangers. And most importantly, for purposes of why I'm telling you this, that contemplation changes your perspective. Hoagland writes, quote, In the Republic of Cancer, you might have your prejudices shattered. In the rooms of this great citadel, patients of one color are cared for by people of other colors. In elevators and operating theaters, one accent meets another. And sometimes only after repetition squeezes through the transom of comprehension. And when the nurse from the Philippines or the aide from Houston's Fifth Ward or the tech named Dev says, I will pray for you, you are filled with gratitude for their compassion, unquote. And what Hoagland gets us to is the idea that humans have the ability to change. And he calls it a reset, quote, Historical record for tolerance for human learning is not promising, yet I believe more than ever that at the bottom of each human being there is a reset button. Undeniably, it is difficult to get to. To reach it seems to require that the ego be diminished by circumstance, but reach that button and press it and the world might reshape itself. Think, unquote, think about that, that we humans have a reset button. We have been reaching for that reset button gravely since George Floyd. We have. The piece is only not even four pages long. Check it out. The Cure for Racism is Cancer by Tony Hoagland in the Sun Magazine, S-U-N Magazine, in September of 2018. I've got to go. Big thanks to our sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota, which give people a second chance. Big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you are the best. And a big thanks to you, my listeners, for tuning in every week. I hope you're enjoying this show. Those that you are new, I hope you're staying with it. I hope you're telling other people about it. I am an idealist. I am proud to say that. My name is Ellie Krug. I am seeking to change this world for the better. Will you please join me on that quest? More next week. Go out and do some good. Talk to you next Monday.